0: Today on The Matt Wall Show, we have exposed Vanderbilt's child mutilation practices, but now it's time to actually do something about it. I'll explain the plan today. Also, Stacey Abrams says that the fetal heartbeat is a far-right conspiracy. The Pentagon is panicking over their failed military recruitment efforts. An MSNBC host thinks he has the ultimate gotcha on Ron DeSantis. And in our daily cancellation, The Washington Post is the latest outlet to claim that there is a racist plot to keep black men out of NFL coaching positions. I'll explain why those claims are completely wrong and also... Stupid. All of that and more today on The Matt Walsh Show. The left has proclaimed an all-out war on childhood. Having a will in place then is the least you could do to protect your kids. A will gives you the power to decide who will raise your kids should something happen to you and your spouse. Without one, the state decides. A will is about protecting your legacy, protecting your finances, ensuring that your medical decisions are honored when you're able to, uh, unable to see them through. Deciding who will take on the responsibility of raising your children or caring for a parent or grandparent. A will may be your only opportunity to directly uh, to direct important family heirlooms, financial investments, and responsibilities to the proper people in your life. Plus, it's incredibly easy and affordable with Epic Will. Epic Will bundles your last will, living will, healthcare power of attorney. HIPAA release and durable financial power of attorney. It only costs $119 for a single person to create a will. And when you use promo code Walsh, you'll save 10%. So go to epicwill.com, use promo code Walsh to save 10% on EpicWill's complete will package. You want to do this right now before it is too late. That again is epicwill.com, promo code Walsh. Welcome. Back to another exciting flannel Friday. You know, my expose on Vanderbilt's gender clinic continues to make major waves in a, in, a, in a major way on a national and local level, even as every effort is made on the other side to lie, deflect, change the subject, or act like there's nothing here worth talking about in the first place. Uh, Vanderbilt has the advantage of a national and local media that knows its role in a, in a situation like this. That is, to act as de facto PR representatives for the institution. For example, our local Nashville Public Radio published an article written by a shameless hack named uh, Blake Farmer, which says, the the headline is this, Vanderbilt is the latest target in a far-right campaign against transgender health clinics. That's their headline. And this is supposedly, they position themselves as an objective news outlet. The article itself, of course, makes no specific mention of any of the details I revealed in my report, except to say that um, I used inflammatory language when describing their practices. Describing them accurately is inflammatory. Meanwhile, the Tennessean, which is another major local publication, tried to ignore the issue completely, but was eventually forced to acknowledge it with this headline. Vanderbilt clarifies gender-affirming care policies amid conservative attacks. Now, the national media hasn't been much better. The Daily Beast reported uh, on the situation with this framing, Vanderbilt Medical Clinic shuts down its website after transphobic attacks. Now, the Washington Post was a little bit more subtle with a fair headline, Social Media Post Sparks Calls to Investigate Tennessee's VUMC, which is fine. And then a relatively even-handed report, except that the Post's article, like nearly every other article written on the subject from a non-conservative outlet, does not specifically mention the procedures that the hospital performs on kids. The Post says that I criticized Vanderbilt for some of the, quote, services provided to minors, but it does not actually specify that those services include double mastectomies for 16-year-old girls, irreversible hormone treatments, puberty-blocking drugs that are also used to chemically castrate sex offenders. Um, The Post will not include those details because it knows that nearly everyone who reads it will recoil in revulsion and horror and say to themselves, you're telling me that's not already illegal? I should also note here that the progressive Christian community in Nashville, otherwise known as you know, heretics, have taken a special interest in this case and are rallying around the hospital. Matthew Paul Turner is a Christian children's book author who came out as gay a few years ago and then left his wife and children. And he tweeted, you're a terrible human, Matt Walsh. You make nothing better, and one day your sad little existence will reap what it has sown over and over again. Now that last part sounds almost like a threat, though uh, I can't say I'm too concerned, but it is a little disappointing in in another way that, that, you know, again, this is a children's book author, his name is also Matthew, and somehow we can't stick together. Maybe he's just upset that my book sold more in a week than probably his entire catalog has sold in a lifetime, but anyway... Also, uh, Robin Henderson Espinoza is a self-described activist, theologian, and clergy member whose whose preferred pronouns are, I'm not making this up, he, they, and doctor. So doctor has been listed as preferred pronoun unironically. Robin tweeted, this is white Christian nationalist terrorizing children. As a trans person and clergy member, I stand with the underside of history, not those using the underside for their political gain. I have no doubt that Robin is focused on the underside. I, however, am focused on protecting children and uh, protecting them from horrific sexual and physical abuse and medical experimentation. And in order to do that, to really protect them, action must be taken. You know, on the right, we have been historically, I think, pretty good at identifying important issues and raising awareness about them. And that needs to happen. The, the rareness, the the uh, awareness raising, the consciousness raising needs to happen. It's important because most people, you know, when it comes to this issue, didn't know that this was happening to kids and, and would have probably assumed that it was already illegal. No change can be made culturally until you reach a critical mass of people who recognize that there is a problem. And, uh, and, and that there is something that must be changed and understand why it must be changed. So on the issue of gender ideology, we've been working to build to that critical mass. But what happens when you get there? See, this is where the right, again, judging historically, typically falters. Because we tell every, everyone that something bad is happening. And then lots of people respond, wow, that's bad. Thanks for telling me. And then we say, well, great talk, folks. And we move on the bad thing still fully intact. You know, it's the bad thing still happening. So converting attention into action, that is where we fail. The left is very good at that. The right, historically, has been very bad. But not this time. We are going to do something about this. Now, I've already personally met with two high-ranking members of the Tennessee House and Senate And we are working on a bill together that would ban all gender transition procedures for minors in the state. No drugs, no surgeries. We are going to shut down Vanderbilt's pediatric gender clinic, and we are going to make sure that no one else opens one in this state ever again. We're also moving on the federal level. I've been in conversation with Senator Marsha Blackburn, who hosted a screening of my film, What is a Woman, a few uh, weeks ago. And there were many local lawmakers, by the way, who attended that screening. And I've been told personally that by some of them that this movie has motivated them to move against gender ideology in the state. I heard the same thing from some of those politicians that I hear from average people on the street, which is, again, I didn't know this was happening, you know, or, or I didn't know it was this bad. Now they know. Following our report on Vanderbilt, Marsha Blackburn has now issued a letter to the FDA calling for an investigation into puberty blockers, which have never been approved for use on children in this way. In fact, the very concept of a puberty blocker has never been sufficiently studied or investigated at all. The drugs are used off-label for the purpose of blocking puberty, and there has been no effort in the medical community to really understand the long-term or even short-term effects of this usage. So getting the FDA involved is an important first step. I've also been in communication with Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, who introduced a bill weeks ago banning child gender transitions on the federal level. Now, right now, no bill like that can actually be passed into law, of course, but it's important to have them on the table anyway, just as the FDA might right now ignore Marsha Blackburn's demands. But it's important to make the demand anyway, and that's because we are forcing this conversation. We are making it an issue. The midterms are a few weeks from now. We have made sexual indoctrination of children and medical child abuse enormous national issues in the lead-up to the election. That is not an accident. Back in January, I tweeted that I was planning an all-out assault on gender ideology this year, and that it would begin with a project that would change the conversation around the topic. In June, we released What is a Woman?, which I think and hope fulfilled that promise and is still fulfilling it. Several weeks ago, I pledged on this show that we would take the momentum that we built from that film and we would turn it into a national movement that would lead to tangible results and real action. And that is beginning right now. Tennessee is just the start. Most importantly, we are fully on the offense now. Okay, we're we're not waiting around for the left to tell us what topics we should discuss or what positions we should adopt as the right has for so long operated. The left tells us the topics we're going to talk about, and then they also tell us what position we're going to take by, you know, we just take whatever the opposite position of them is. And and so they, they are setting the terms. Okay, but we're not doing that now. We are not scrambling to take defensive postures all the time as the left dictates the terms of the argument. We are talking about things they don't want to talk about. And we are fighting a battle that they desperately don't want to have to fight, and are not prepared to fight. So this time, we are the ones with the plan of action, and they are the ones scrambling to respond. You can tell that they're not used to being in that position, and they don't like it. And that's how it should be, because this is how we win. Now let's get to five headlines. Did you know that uh, your home address is part of the public record? Any cyber thief can use this one data point to attempt various types of identity theft crimes against you. Bad actors can also leverage this information to redirect your mail without your authorization. They can try to scam you with official looking letters requesting your personal information. It's important to understand how cyber crime and identity theft are affecting our lives every day. Your personal information gets exposed so often that it's dangerously easy for a cyber criminal to steal your identity. That's why protecting your identity can be easy with LifeLock by Norton. LifeLock detects and and alerts you to potential identity threats that you may not spot on your own, like crimes committed by thieves pretending to be you. If you do become a victim of identity theft, God forbid, a dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it for you. You know, nobody can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but it's easy to help protect yourself with LifeLock by Norton. Identity theft protection starts here. Join now and save up to 25% off your first year at lifelock.com slash Walsh. That's lifelock.com slash Walsh for 25% off. Uh, there was one other, of course, there's been a lot of leftists you know, panicking about this on Twitter, but just this one I thought was kind of funny. Uh, this is from a guy, John Iad- Darola. I guess he has something to do with the Young Turks. I, I don't know. Anyway, he, he tweeted in response to, you know, when I said we're, we're going to pass a law that makes this illegal, he says, Matt Walsh has to spend years of his life pretending he gives an S about this, all as a distraction to help keep billionaire taxes low. What a weird effing way to live. This again, the reason I, I read that to you is because it shows you another disadvantage that the left has. They have a lot of advantages with all the institutional power and everything else and the media bias and all that stuff. But um, they also have a lot of disadvantages. Some that we just talked about. That you know, This is not a conversation they want to have. They're not prepared for it. But also, the other disadvantage is that they really don't understand us. They just don't. They don't know. They don't understand what we're doing. They don't know who they're dealing with or why. And that is an advantage for us that we should exploit ruthlessly so you've got this guy and i and i believe that he believes this i mean i believe that he is this stupid and utterly oblivious and clueless that this is what he believes and he's not alone he says oh matt he doesn't really care about this if he cares about keeping billionaire taxes low like why would i care about that i i never talk about cutting taxes for billion. In fact, I'm, I'm, if I ever talk about cutting taxes, it's usually in the, in the context of complaining when Republicans focus on that rather than these more important cultural issues. So um, I talk about the cultural issues, gender ideology, social issues, life, family issues, all the time. It's like the only thing I focus on. And uh, and, and he has decided that, no, that's all, that is all, I don't even care about that. That's all, a, this is all a smokescreen. Because in reality, I'm sitting around every day just hoping that Jeff Bezos gets a tax cut. Why in the world would I care about that? Especially when all of the billionaires are on your side. They're all a bunch of left, all the, all of the most of the wealthiest institutions and corporations. Are, they're all on your side. They're with you. I don't like these people. But they don't understand. They, they just, they don't get us. They don't. And that is good. That's a good thing. It's why they're constantly being blindsided. It's why they're backed into corners. It's why they're on their heels right now. Because they just don't get it. Uh, And I am, I guess, not going to say any more to uh, disabuse them of of their false notions. Because, like I said, it works to our advantage. Yeah, you're right. You're right, John. That's all I care about. Um, You know, I wake up every day saying to myself, I hope Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg are making money today. That's all I think about. I'm sitting around the dinner table, and it's all we talk about. It's, I, I live my entire life fighting for that, and everything. My entire public career has just—it's been one long, uh, you know. It's like I'm working undercover. This, that's all it is. You've—you've—you've you've, you've blown my cover. All right. Uh, this one, the Daily Wire it says Georgia Democrat Stacey Abrams said in a recently serviced video that at six weeks, unborn babies' heartbeats aren't real are a manufactured sound design, or rather a manufactured sound designed to take away women's rights. Abrams is again campaigning to be the governor of Georgia after a failed run in 2018. Notably, the Democrat refused to tr- traditionally concede the race to Republican Governor Brian Kemp, suggesting voter suppression and a broken system. Um, so we have that clip and let's, brief clip, let's listen to it.
1: There is no such thing as a heartbeat at six weeks. It is a manufactured sound designed to convince
0: that men have the right to take control of a woman's body and away from her. That is one of the most deranged conspiracy theories I've ever heard in my life. Not only, so there's no heartbeat, it's manufactured and it is specifically manufactured. So I guess when you go in for the ultrasound, the ultrasound tech is part of a wide-ranging far-right conspiracy to um, convince you That babies are people when really they aren't. This is all a conspiracy, and the and the ultrasound techs they're in on it. They're all a bunch of Nazis and far right extremists, terrorists. Glenn Kessler is a fact checker for the Washington Post. He came to Stacey's defense, of course. Says for what it's worth, fetal heartbeat is a misnomer. The ultrasound picks up electrical activity generated by an embryo. The so-called heartbeat sound that you hear is created by the ultrasound. not not until ten weeks. Can the opening and closing of cardiac valves be detected by a Doppler machine? Now, look, I'm tempted to just say, um, just like I would say to John, okay, you want to go and and believe that that all we care about is tax cuts for billionaires, that's fine. And here I'm tempted to say, okay, fine. If you guys want to go out there and make the argument that, uh, well, it's okay to kill the baby because the heartbeat isn't technically a heartbeat. The heartbeat is, it's it's all part of a conspiracy. The fetal fetal heartbeat is a right-wing conspiracy. If you want that to be your argument, especially going into the midterms, then go for it. Put it on a bumper sticker. I I encourage you. Put it on poster boards. Put it on signs. March down the street. Fetal heartbeat is a right-wing conspiracy. Go ahead. Um, If you want to parse the definition of heartbeat in order to justify destroying human life, if you want to expose yourself in that way, then go ahead. I stipulate if you want to expose yourself in that way. I don't mean in like a Jeffrey Toobin kind of way. But we should note here, even so, that they're wrong. So to fact check the fact checker, back to the Daily Wire article, it says a peer-reviewed science has found the following. The nonprofit Charlotte Lozier Institute has outlined, quote, um, the, heart, the heart is actively beating at six weeks. Between a conception and birth, the baby's heart will beat approximately 54 million times. The baby's average heartbeat is uh, 98 BPM. This will rise to 175 BPM by nine weeks gestation. The presence of a heartbeat at six to eight weeks gestation correlates with a live birth rate of 98% in normal pregnancies without intervention. The brain has divided into three primary sections responsible for sensing and decision-making, moving and tracking objects, and vital bodily functions. Eyes, ears, and nose start forming. So that's all what's happening at six weeks. Also, by the way, we should note that um, even on Planned Parenthood's website, up until just now... They also acknowledge that the heartbeat starts at six weeks, interestingly enough. Now, after this went viral, Stacey Abrams, they changed it to make their, even though it had been there for years, they changed it to put it more in line with what Stacey Abrams said. So there is a heartbeat at six weeks. But think about the wording. Going back to uh, Glenn Kessler, think about the wording. He says the heartbeat at six weeks, he says, is really just electrical activity by the embryo. That's all. It's electrical activity generated by an embryo. Well, he's right, of course. But then you could say that about the heartbeat at any age. Okay? We could say that about Glenn Kessler's heartbeat. That's ah, just electrical activity being generated by the body. You could reduce any human at any age down to mere mechanical functions if you want. Uh, Ken Kessler, Glenn Kessler, he's just a skeleton covered with organs and muscle and skin walking around. That's all he is. I mean, you really you, you get into it. He's just like a he's a bag of bones and flesh walking, that's all he is. Glenn Kessler, what is he? He's a he's a collection of atoms. That's all he is. You care that much about one little atom? So you take one little, one little t- tiny atom, and we don't care about that, and then you add a bunch of them and make Glenn Kessler, and suddenly he matters? You can use that language to dehuman, uh, de-person anyone. But it is strange. It's strange how selective the left and the media can tend to be on, on this subject. Like when, when exactly... In in what scenarios are we acknowledging the personhood and humanity of unborn children? So here's a report the exact same day this is going on. Uh, The Today Show has a report, which also has to deal with, you know, those, quote, fetuses that just generate electricity. That's all they do. Let's Let's watch this.
1: Wait, so you guys have to see this. Have you heard about this? So, this morning we wanted to show you. <laughs> I'm just trying to change talking. the subject. Some amazing baby faces. Look at this. So, researchers in Britain wanted to know if babies in the womb react when the mom ingests a flavor of food. And this is what they saw. Do you want to guess what was on the left? So, the left is a baby in its resting state. And then on the right, you see how he smiles 20 yeah. minutes? The mom ate some carrots. Oh. On the ooh. left with the... They were just a resting state. That was the resting, but, but he right, liked the carrots. She had like a oh, carrot pill. So were there other foods? Oh. Yes, there were other foods. I'm glad you asked. You want to look at this baby's sure. reaction before mom had mom <laughs> had kale.
2: <laughs> wow, wow! So
1: here's the thing. The what about if mom had ice cream? <laughs> I don't know. Why,
2: why would yeah. they go? Why would they go with?
1: Let me with explain. And vegetables. So the SETI's co-author <laughs> says the images could just show muscle movements when a baby's reacting to maybe a flavor that's bitter. So you shouldn't interpret it whether you know it's happy or distaste. No, I think that's how I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because once they get out of
2: the womb, it's that same look. Yeah, it's the same. Yeah. yeah. The same. That's,
1: that's not funny, horrible, though. But it just goes to show, you know, what you ingest. Yeah, you are what you eat, and They're the 3D awesome. imagery is pretty just cool. Just really they didn't really have cool. that when I was. Pregnant. No. Did you get 3D? Yeah, I got 3D. And really? Honestly, Ollie and Rusty look exactly like they do the 3D in 3D images. Like, well, I guess that's to see how it works.
0: And my kids so. had chalk drawings. <laughs> <laughs> Every single person up there on camera, all four of them, would uh, adamantly support so-called abortion rights. So, when it comes to babies uh, experiencing taste from the food that their mother is eating. When it comes to that, it's, oh, they're cute. Look at those little babies. But if we're talking about actually executing those same babies in the womb, then they're just a collection of cells, a a clump of cells is all. Let me ask you something. If a baby can react to Brussels sprouts and kale in the womb, uh, do you think that the child might react to being physically tortured and torn apart limb from limb? Might there be a reaction to that? If the baby can experience sensation, taste, what's the experience of um, being t- being torn apart, dismembered while you're still alive, which is how they perform these abortions at uh, especially the later stages. Three D technology is also it's I mean it's almost miraculous. It's incredible, but that only goes to show how on the conservative side and the pro life side uh, we line up with science. Okay, we are the pro science side because science only continues ever more to vindicate our position. You know, the more the more we learn about what is happening in the womb, you know, the more we learn about human development, the more horrific and barbaric abortion becomes. Uh, Okay, one other thing, because I have to play this for you too. Speaking of the abortion issue, I want you to watch this ad that uh, Tim Ryan posted on his Twitter account. And he's very proud of this ad, but I want you to watch this.
2: Hi, my name's Nick Brown. I'm a resident of Willoughby, Ohio. Uh, I've lived in Ohio all my life. I'm also an army veteran. I was active duty for four years and I'm currently a reserve officer in the JAG Corps. This race to me is one of the most important races in America today. This is a race that is gonna change a lot of lives. We've seen what happened recently with Roe, and it's gonna take legislative action to be able to change things like that. And I have two daughters, and it's incredible to me. How much their lives changed in the last two weeks? Sorry, I'm getting emotional right now. But... My wife is going to be working on this campaign. She's never done it before in her life. This is not the America that I in. Tim Ryan is the opportunity to around.
0: So this is a man. Uh, and I use that term only in the biological sense In this case This is a man who Is crying It's getting emotional At the thought that his daughters Won't be able to, to abort his grandchildren So he is emotional He's uh, distraught He's got young daughters And he's already thinking about The future he wants for them And, uh, and he wants to make sure they can have abortions So he's already thinking about his young daughter's abortions And, uh, and, and he's very upset that his own progeny, his own descendants, his own grandchildren, uh, will not be able to be killed, potentially. But I say, yet again, if if this is the foot that the Democrats want to put forward, then I say, go for it. All right, follow along with this story. This is from MSN. Headline, Pentagon bedeviled by recruitment failures as solutions prove elusive. I'm always in favor of any headline that can use a, a word like Bedeviled. But it says, the Pentagon has characterized the headwinds in stark terms, saying its recruitment environment is the worst it's been since the end of the Vietnam War. Some of the military services will just barely meet their goals as the fiscal year ends later this month. The Army, the Armed Forces' largest branch, will miss its target by 30,000 soldiers, said Senator Kirsten, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand. Senator Tom Tillis said that there's little evidence to suggest the outlook will improve anytime soon, adding bleakly, there is no sunlight on the horizon. Military leaders teach a three-word mantra, adapt and overcome. To every service member, it's part reminder and part roadmap for how to meet challenges head on. During the testimony, military officials offered a litany of reasons why factors outside of their control undermined recruitment efforts with vague promises to consider potential solutions and problems raised by the committee. Um, And then it goes on with more of the problems they face. Only one in 11 people ages 17 to 24 have a propensity to serve, said Lieutenant General Caroline Miller, senior Air Force personnel official. Uh, And they list some of the other problems leading to this. Americans are obese, competitive job market, all the rest of it. Okay, so that's the problem. They can't recruit anyone, and that is a problem. If you can't get recruits for the military, that's a problem. But listen to how MSN begins the article, okay? Because I skipped the first paragraph. It says, military officials and lawmakers on Wednesday painted a grim picture of recruiting efforts within the Defense Department. As a recent study suggests, worrisome shortfalls could grow worse if more women decline to serve over restrictive abortion laws in many Republican-led states where U.S. personnel are based. Oh, so there you go. So, yeah, there's a problem with recruitment. But it's because women don't want to serve in states where they can't get abortions. So that's why we're not getting enough people to serve is because there there aren't enough abortions happening. That explains it. So it's not like the woke messaging and recruiting ads that are chasing people away. Uh, In fact, it's chasing away all of the sorts of people you actually want and need in the military, making them head for the hills It's not that. It's not political correctness and leftist indoctrination driving people away. It's not vax mandates and other tyrannies inflicted on on our service members. It's not that people fundamentally don't trust the government and don't want to be sent overseas to fight wars that have nothing to do with us. It's not any of that. It's that women can't get abortions. That's why there's a recruitment problem, right? Right. Okay, next we have Mehdi Hassan on MSNBC, and he has some thoughts about DeSantis and immigration. And uh, we'll play, this is kind of a long clip, we'll play some of this. Go ahead.
3: I want to tell you the story of Luigia Colucci. Back during the First World War, she was stuck alone in Italy with her teen daughters, but the homeland had become too dangerous. So in 1917, they boarded a ship to America, where her husband and son had already settled for work years earlier. On that trip, German U-boats were just one of the hazards they faced. While Luigia and her girls were still at sea, America, which had already allowed in thousands of Europeans, passed the Xenophobic Alien Act. It banned migrants from Asian countries as well as immigrants who couldn't read. That was a problem for Luigia. Passenger records show that she and her daughters were illiterate. But Luigia was lucky. The Alien Act would not take effect until that May. She and her children were put on a train to be reunited with Luigia's husband and son. Luigia lived for four more decades as an American with a great big American family. It's a story that millions of immigrants to America can tell because despite all the anti-immigration sentiment back then, America had pretty open borders compared with today. It didn't even have a militarized border patrol yet. And migrants like Luigi Colucci didn't have to worry about being put on a plane under false pretenses and shipped thousands of miles away for an anti-immigration stunt. Of course, that's what Florida Governor Ron DeSantis did to about 50 mostly Venezuelan migrants who were tricked into boarding a plane in Texas that dumped them on Martha's Vineyard. The sheriff of Bear County, Texas, where those migrants were picked up off the street, is now investigating the case as a possible crime. What DeSantis did, what he and conservatives are bragging about, was gross, inhuman, cold-hearted. And it's even worse when you think of Luigi Colucci trying to get into America over 100 years ago, because you see, Luigi Colucci is Ron DeSantis' maternal great-great grandmother. Okay, good. As Florida was, based I was waiting Virginia-
0: for the the M. Night Shyamalan twist at the end. <gasps> Ron, you tell me, a guy with the last name DeSantis has uh, an immigrant in his family? Shocking! My God, this changes everything. I thought DeSantis' family had always been here. I thought, with a name like DeSantis, he was a you know, I thought he was a, a Native American by. Ancestry These people are so stupid This guy in particular I don't, you know, I don't know much about him but I've seen a few clips of him He's always so proud of himself You can tell he, he thinks Okay, The gap between how he perceives his own IQ And what it actually is Is vast It's, it's big enough to fit a whole other IQ in between it um, And so he thinks this is a big gotcha moment And it isn't Okay let me Let me explain why. First of all, it, it's very interesting that on the left, when it comes to so many other issues, climate change, abortion, in particular, uh, they are very quick to bring up the you know the, the myth of overpopulation, right? That's there's too many people on earth, like it's full or the, earth, the entire and they say, now overpopulation is a myth when it, when, when we relate it to, the entire world. Okay. We're not we're not anywhere near the carrying capacity of the globe. We're not anywhere close to that. I mean you, you could still take every single person on Earth and fit them like in Texas. And, and in fact they would you know everyone could live in a townhouse and have a little, you know, you wouldn't have a lot of room. You have a little postage stamp size room, uh maybe, I don't know, you'd have a tenth of an acre or something. And you could do that. Okay. That's that's how much room there is on the planet Earth. And there is Vast, vast, vast swaths of land that are empty, and I'm not just talking about Antarctica where nobody can live. I'm talking about places that people could live. Um, Fruitful lands are are still available that we're we're not. So the problem is that we, with overpopulation and the way we get this misperception of overpopulation, is that we all choose to live in like bunched up communities, which is why whenever you read about overpopulation, they always show pictures of. Uh, Tokyo or New York or something with people all crammed in walking down the sidewalk. They don't show you vast rural areas. Uh, they don't include that. Now, all that being said, it's still interesting to me that if you if you imagine that there is an overpopulation problem with too many people on Earth, then already, how can you draw a comparison between immigrants from 100 years ago or 200 years ago to immigrants today? Because by your own admission. There's just like too many people. That's one big difference. So that's a a difference or an argument that that should resonate with them as believers in overpopulation. Uh, But let me say what the actual difference is. It's not really about the number of people in America. I mean, there are a lot more people today than there were when uh, when DeSantis' great-great-grandmother came here. I still wouldn't say that we're at carrying capacity exactly. What the difference though it's about the systems that are in place okay so when immigrants came to this country 100 years ago they were still now the land was was fully settled back in the 1920s but they were still in a large way helping to build the country they were they were coming and immediately helping to build it this is this is this is the case 100 years ago it's especially the case when you go back farther than that, because the other thing that we hear from guys like Mehdi Hassan is that we're all we're all immigrants. We're all descended from immigrants, right? And so they'll take you, even if your family came here 200 years ago, 250 years ago, 500 years ago, you're not off the hook. Yeah, but again, these were, and it's, it's, it's more and more the case the farther you go back, these were people coming and helping to build the country. With a country that was not built the way it is today, and they were coming to help build it. They were were coming legally, another important distinction. They were coming legally, and if you want to say it's because the laws were different or or our approach to immigration was different, fine. They were coming legally, though. Already a definitional difference between that and illegal immigrants of today who are sneaking across the border. But it's not just that. They were coming legally to help build the country. I mean, if somebody came here 200 years ago, many, many of the immigrants who came, say, 200 years ago, they came and they were the ones who went out west. Okay, they went out, out onto the frontier. A lot of them died in the process. Um, what about today? Well, the country is fully built now. All the systems are in place. And so now when illegal immigrants come, or even, you know, not even legal immigrants, they are coming to take advantage of systems that are already in place. And when we talk about systems, Primarily, I'm talking about the welfare system, the welfare state. We have a massive trillion-dollar, multi-trillion-dollar welfare state that these people are coming and they are taking advantage of. Uh, And it's not sustainable. It becomes an an enormous and has been and is now an enormous strain and drain on our country. When Ron DeSantis' great-great-grandmother came here, uh, those systems were not in place like they are now. So it's a, it, you have immigrants on one hand from 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 250 years ago, are coming to build a country as opposed to now where they're coming to take advantage of what the country has already built. Big difference. And if anyone can't see the difference, I'm not sure what, what else I can do to explain it other than just say what it is. And if you can't connect the dots there, I'm not sure what to tell you. All right. Let's see, what else do we got here? I was slightly interested in this, only mildly, so maybe we'll play a little bit of this clip. Uh, Some celebrity gossip from the Daily Wire. It says, hyper-woke Maroon 5 frontman, Adam Levine, cheated on his Victoria's Secret model wife, Bahati Prinsloo, with Instagram model Sumner Stroh, and tried to name his child with Prinsloo after the mistress. So This is one of these things that's been in my peripheral, just you go on, you go on social media and there are people talking about Adam Levine and I guess screenshots of text messages that he had sent his mistresses. But anyway, what interested me more about it is this act, the, the mistress herself, what's her name again? Sumner Stroh, who's an Instagram model, and she blew the lid o- off of the, on this scandal and you know put out a video on TikTok, making herself into the victim of an affair that she participated in. Let's play a little bit of this.
4: I've retaken this like 10 times now. Essentially, I was having an affair with a man who's married to a Victoria's Secret model. At the time, you know, I was young, I was naive, and I mean, quite frankly, I feel exploited. I wasn't in the scene like I am now, um, so I was definitely very easily manipulated. Rune 5 is practically elevator music at this point, so I'm sure you know who Adam Levine is. Um, but Adam and I were seeing each other for about a year after I stopped talking to him over, you know, a period of months, this is, uh, how he came back into my life. He said, okay, serious question. I'm having another baby. And if it's a boy, I really, uh, want to name it Sumner. You okay with that? Dead serious.
0: Right. I don't Uh, care about this. Uh, Fine. Here's my only point about this. I, I, so Adam Levine is cheating on his wife, and he's a celebrity, you know, uh, musician, and he's a scumbag, and he's betraying his wife and his family. No big, no big, no breaking news there. Okay, I think that's not a big surprise. Uh, it's bad. It's not a big surprise. What, I, what I'm looking at though is that, like this, this, and and we've seen other examples of it even recently. With women who were involved in sexual relationships with uh, with men as adults so they're adults who got into consensual sexual relationships with with men and then after the fact claiming they were groomed and exploited you're you're a grown up you you made a choice to be involved and now you're you're one of the victims you're with a married man now he, okay he's scumbag number 1 here i don't deny that at all because he's the one who made a pledge. He made a commitment to his wife, and he's betraying her. So he's scumbag number one. But you're scumbag number two, okay? And it's it's a pretty close second, because it does, as they say, it does take two to tango in this case, and, or, or, or however many people may have been involved in any particular episode. Um, you chose to be there, and now you're saying you were groomed as a grown-up. So this is this ba- backwards, topsy-turvy world we live in, where We can't talk about children being groomed. So the idea of children being groomed is they tell us non-existent. It's not happening. We can't even talk about it. In fact, if you even talk about it on Twitter, they'll ban you. So no, children are not being groomed. That's not a problem. But grown adults, Instagram models are being groomed by the rock stars they're choosing to have sex with. There was another, there was another uh, musician recently. I think it was the Arcade Fire guy, I'm pretty sure, had his own sort of sex scandal where he was involved with grown-ups who were claiming that they were groomed and exploited. But again, you can't, not, not, not with the kids. The kids, that's not a problem. We're not talking about that. So kids being taken to drag shows or kindergartners being taught about gender identity and sexuality... That's not grooming, but a rock star hitting on some Instagram model bimbo who's an adult, that is grooming? All right. Finally, from the New York Post, I hate to say I told you so, but here it is. A a Tasmanian woman has shared her incredible find on the sand at Bruni Island, mistaking an almost completely transparent fish for a piece of seaweed. We'll put a picture up on the screen. Uh, It says that this is this is a transparent fish. Apparently, they hatch out in the ocean, and they're initially part of the plankton. They're actually they're, they're a species of eel, and they're totally transparent. You can like see right through them. So, I told you. You see that picture there? That's what Ariel should look like, scientifically speaking. I couldn't have called this any better. We just had the translucent fish discourse less than a week ago, and now we have this discovery of, oh, uh, it's transparent, not translucent, but still. So there you go. Let's get to the comment section. Who's bringing shopping carts back to the With the ever-increasing numbers of makes and models of cars, it's impossible for a traditional chain storefront to stock all the parts you need. Why wait for the man at the counter uh, to order parts for your car from the brand that his warehouse happens to carry? You have a computer in your pocket It's called your cell phone, which can go on the internet if you didn't know that. Just go to rockauto.com and you're going to find everything you need. Rockauto.com has been in the auto parts business for 20 years. Family owned. Their goal is to make auto parts available and affordable to keep you safe on the road. They uh, not only have the auto parts you need, but they will give you a selection of trusted brands and uh, name brands that you can choose from. The rockauto.com catalog is very easy to navigate. You can quickly see all the parts available for your vehicle and choose the brand specifications and prices you prefer. Chain stores have different price tiers for professional mechanics and do-it-yourselfers, but rockauto.com, Uh, They don't play that game. Prices are the same for everybody, and they're reliably low for everybody. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. Go to rockauto.com. Get brakes, shocks, carpets, wipers, headlights, mirrors, mufflers, lug nuts, or any other part that you might need. Rockauto.com. And be sure to write Walsh in their How Did You Hear About Us box so they know that I sent you to rockauto.com. Judith says, only people like you, Matt, can possibly rescue our country. Please don't become weary in well-doing. Well, not to sound corny, but it's not people like me; it's people like us, Judith, and, and I. And I actually do mean that. It's uh, obviously I'm, I'm very far, even here at the Daily Wire, I'm very far from a one man band. We have a whole team, um, and everyone here on the team does great work. But but even beyond that, like we, you know, it's we also need our our members and our supporters. Uh, we couldn't do any any of this without them. And then there are people outside the Daily Wire that are doing doing uh, great work as well. Okay, Bobby Frost says. Your and Candace's comments about porn last night were spot on. So this was two nights ago at backstage. My hubby and I were a little surprised at the other's responses. We've been married 22 years and together 25 years. I've never watched porn together or alone since, since being together. We both had minimal exposure to it before we were together and always felt wrong and not in a sexy way to be watching others engaging in sex acts. We have a healthy and active love life and neither of us have ever stepped out. So porn is not a given or a necessity in a relationship. I commend you all for saying that and sticking to it. Um, Thank you from the housewife that would feel betrayed if my husband was upstairs watching porn while I feed the kid. And you should feel betrayed because it it is, in fact, a betrayal. Uh, S says, I saw someone just yesterday claiming to be a security guard for that hospital who posted on Reddit calling you a doxing terrorist for literally just showing videos the hospital itself made public. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, doxing is when you find private information. And first of all, let's let's also stipulate that doxing is something that happens against a, an individual, a person. I'm not exactly sure how you dox an institution, but uh, doxing, we talk about doxing, at least in a negative way, it's a, a private individual, you're releasing private information about them because you wanna embarrass them or get them hurt, or oftentimes both. In this, in this case, we are taking resources that they themselves have made and have provided to the public, and we're saying, hey, guys, look at this stuff. Um, Patco says, I don't look at it as a membership. I look at it as a donation to a cause I believe in. Thank you. Well, I appreciate that, but you should look at it as a membership, because it's actually not a donation. You know, this is—we're we're not a, a nonprofit charity begging for donations. We are—we're a, a business, and part of the deal here is that, uh, yeah, if you are a Daily Wire member, you're taking part—you're part of something important, part of a movement—but you're also getting something in return for your money. We're not asking for—you uh, know—we're we're, not—we're not—we're not a charity case. And th- that's—that is one approach. I mean, there are a lot of uh, nonprofits out there, conservative nonprofits, and some of them do good work, but. They are in the position of sort of always being a charity case, of having to solicit donations. Like, just give us your money, and then we'll promise down the line to do something worthwhile with it. Uh, This is different. This is a business transaction, and we want to keep it that way. Um, And MN32 says, Hi, Matt. Aside from The Daily Wire, what other news sources do you like and trust? Well, aside from us, uh, the post-millennial, you hear about them. A lot of the news sources, you hear me read from a lot on the show. The post-millennial, they do great, great work. Also, there's a site called Redux that I mention often on the show. They're a feminist, kind of anti-gender ideology news site. I imagine that the people who run it would probably hate my guts. I don't know that for a fact, but the people in that group uh, generally do, based on my experience, but they still, even so, uh, however they feel about me, I appreciate their work. There are a lot of other outlets, too, you know, and then also individuals. Um, I mean, obviously, you know that I, I harvest material from libs of TikTok all the time. She remains, as I've said for months, one of the most important journalists working in America today. Same for Chris Ruffo, who you hear me mention often. Jack Posobiec, too, seems to always have great scoops. So there are um, there are people who, as I said, and what what all of us are doing is we're trying to, in, in many ways, we're doing a favor for, as we go into the midterms, for Republican politicians Okay, we've made these things part of the conversation, and we're, we're trying to hand you the reins, guys. So take the reins. All the way to victory. Finally, this is a, a Twitter DM. Beth says, Matt, I usually agree with you, but your comments about picky eaters really just shows me that this is a parenting problem you've never dealt with. You're lucky, but don't judge other parents, please. Yes, yeah, so this was someone on Twitter yesterday who, uh, I think it was a some kind of a parenting advice columnist, I think, who said that, You know, she's tired of parents who say of their children, oh, well, the kids just eat whatever we eat. And a lot of people were retweeting that and agreeing with that and saying, oh, that's not realistic. That's not how people live. And I only responded to that saying, how well, what other arrangement could you possibly have? Are you you people really sitting down for dinner every night and making a separate meal for your kids? Is that what people really do? Uh, No, we don't do that. And we also don't have picky eaters in our house. And I'm sorry, I do think. Now, I, I know it might be more difficult with some kids than it is with others. My son, my oldest son, for example, has always been like a garbage disposal. You just, you'll eat anything. So you can get, you can get lucky in that way. But I do think that parents who complain, oh, my kid's a piggy, won't eat anything. So we have to make a separate meal for our kid. And I've been to many houses where they're eating dinner and the kid has their own, you know, everyone's eating a real meal. The kid has just like chicken nuggets and of Kraft macaroni and cheese or whatever. And sometimes you're going to do that. Sometimes you're going to have quick dinners and that's fine. But generally, picky eaters, that is a product of conditioning and first world luxury. So I would say that if your child is a picky eater, it's because you are allowing your child to be, because you've made that an option. If you go to a third world country, there are no picky eaters. And so how do you get past having a child as a picky eater? Well, you give them the food. You say, this is what we're eating for dinner. If they won't eat it, then you say, okay, we're going to go hungry tonight. And it's only going to take a few times of that, of them being hungry before they'll start to actually eat the food that's provided to them. They're not going to starve themselves. They're not going to literally just say, okay, I'll starve to death. Eventually they'll eat if they're hungry enough. Well, this is exciting. Tonight, you can see a brand new series on Daily Wire Plus called Breakaways with Allison Williams. If you don't know the story, Allison was a successful ESPN sideline reporter, but when ESPN made the vaccine mandatory for all employees, she refused to get it uh, for a very valid reason. She was trying to get pregnant and was worried about potential side effects. Rather than take the risk, she quit. On Breakaways, Allison sits down with athletes who took a stand for their beliefs. The first four episodes feature Jonathan Isaac, Uh, Nick Rolovich, Ennis Cantor Freedom, and Dana White. Those episodes will be available tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern, and four more episodes are coming soon. Head to dailywireplus.com right now to become a member and watch the series tonight. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. Well, I'm hardly in the mood to discuss anything related to football, as I'm currently in the process of losing badly in our Daily Wire Fantasy Football League. If this continues, I'll eventually be doomed to suffer the agreed-upon punishment, which is a courtside seats at a WNBA game. The very thought fills me with grief and an intense sense of dread, though behind both of those feelings is also, I admit, a hint of excitement about what an incredible trolling opportunity that would be. So it's a confusing mix of emotions and doesn't put me in the right frame of mind to discuss any football-related topic. But the Washington Post today has left me no choice. So WAPO is is out this week with a report titled, How the NFL Blocks Black Coaches. Nearly two decades after the NFL enacted the Rooney Rule, teams hiring and firing practices still disadvantage black coaches at every turn. And it's getting worse, a post-investigation found. Now, this is nothing new, of course. Every year around this time, as the NFL season ramps up, we get a new flurry of moral panic and media hand-wringing over the alleged conspiracy to keep black people out of head coaching positions in the NFL. And every year, there are new reports. And every report simply, in more words than is necessary, restates the fact that there are more white coaches than black in the NFL, and then follows that data point with a whole string of wholly unsupported and absurdly irrational assumptions about why this disparity exists. As the post says in its headline, the NFL is blocking black coaches, but they have no evidence of black coaches being blocked. They have only evidence of black coaches being fewer in number than white coaches. This in itself does not prove or even realistically indicate a racist conspiracy. I could just as well point to all the people that are astronauts and observe the data point that I am not an astronaut and thereby conclude that there's a deliberate conspiracy to prevent me specifically from being an astronaut. There's a conspiracy to stop me from being an astronaut. Well, how do you know that? Because I'm not an astronaut. This is what passes for critical thinking among our media elite. But this time around, they've also enlisted current and former black coaches to help make the uh, victim case. So let's take a look at that.
2: What everyone is looking for in a head football coach all right this is what it's supposed to look like. What I couldn't accept though was that okay I'm black and we're not supposed to get opportunities so this is just how it's going to be Lovey. I couldn't accept that. I was in this business to teach guys to be the best football player they could be. In my era we played but you didn't see a lot of African-American coaches so it wasn't you know your your path or your thought process. I love Playing the game, and when I was done, I was going to coach. I felt compelled to give back. I knew if I had success, that that would open the door for people. And I kind of realized there was like a, a network of black coaches trying to help younger coaches like get in. But
4: you always kind of feel,
2: you know, that weight. You have the responsibility to do this the right way because there's many people who were career-long NFL assistants who never got that opportunity. I think we got to do a better job with ourselves to put ourselves in a better position to make guys like Tony Proud, to make guys like Herm Proud. There's only 32 jobs in this league, so whether you get a second chance or not, you're lucky no matter what color you are. I do think the words genius, guru, quarterback whisperer, are all phrases that they use to describe non-African American coaches. It's as if we don't have the same IQ, uh, intelligence level as, as some of our other brothers. You can go
0: out and catch the ball, you can throw the ball, but can you, can you lead? Now, let's make a few points here. First, the guy at the end of that clip is Romeo Cornell. He's a, a black man who had a, a long career as an NFL coach before retiring a couple of years ago in his 70s. The first guy in the clip is Lovey Smith. He's a current black NFL coach who uh, has also had a long career. Now, Smith is a picture of mediocrity with a career win-loss record of almost exactly 500. He's lost as many games as he's won as a head coach. And yet he's still a coach and was just hired by a new team this year, in spite of the fact that during his previous two seasons as a coach with a different team, he finished with a total of eight wins and 24 losses combined. As for Romeo Cornell, he coached three different teams over the course of 15 years, and finished with a combined record of 32 and 63, so mediocre would be a high compliment in his case. In fact, of all the black coaches featured in the video, only one Tony Dungy is or was successful from a win-loss perspective. All the rest ranged from terrible to average. Hugh Jackson, also featured, survived for 40 games as the head coach of the Browns, and won, get this, three of them. He won three games out of 40, and only at that point did he finally get fired. What's my point? My point is simply that if there's a conspiracy to keep black men out of head coaching positions, it doesn't make any sense that so many mediocre and even downright awful black coaches could have such long and somehow still lauded careers. Now there are a lot of white NFL head coaches who also are terrible or mediocre and manage to just hang around and it's very confusing and it's like frustrating for the fans. So this happens with white coaches and black coaches. But my point is that if there's a conspiracy, like the theory of an anti-black conspiracy in NFL coaching does not predict that there would be an army of bad black coaches who still get and keep those jobs. And when you have a theory that does not predict what you observe in reality, it means the theory is wrong. That's how you test a theory. But there's more. As is often rightly pointed out in these discussions, the NFL suffers from enormous racial disparities in other places as well. For example, almost every cornerback in the league is black. Almost every safety linebacker wide receiver is black. If racial disparities on the sidelines are evidence of racism, then racial disparities on the field should also be evidence of racism. Of course, the race hustles will try to flip this around. You know, They'll acknowledge that there are many more black people than white playing football, but then they'll declare that this is all the more reason why there should be more black people coaching. But I could just as easily make the argument the other way. Since there are so many white people on the sidelines, there ought to be more white people playing. So the left posits that black people are condemned to make millions of dollars playing the game rather than coaching it, but I might as just as well argue that whites are condemned to make millions coaching it rather than playing it. These disparities exist across the league. But the the left's explanation for the disparity makes no sense, and they can easily be refuted by their own arguments turned against them. So how do we actually explain it? Well, it's it's kind of an interesting question. Like, if you can get past the racial stuff, it's actually interesting. So let me me present a hypothesis that has the advantage of lining up with reality and common sense. So many children grow up dreaming of being in the NFL. Very few of them, I imagine, dream of being coaches. That's not what kids are, you know, out on the field. Like, you, you find kids out throwing footballs around and everything else. You don't find very many that choose to have a whistle or, a, a, you, know, you know, standing on the sideline with a clipboard because they want to be a coach. Almost everyone who wants to be in the football business wants to play. Yet, black people are more likely to succeed on the field, as these the statistics clearly show. That's just a statistical reality which means that white people who cannot make it as players but yet still love the game are motivated to make the transition into coaching sooner and in greater numbers. You'll note that many of the greatest coaches currently in the league and through the history of the sport were mediocre players who became legendary coaches. They had A lot of times they had short careers. Sometimes they didn't even make it into the NFL or if they did they were only there for a few years and then they washed out. Then they became legendary coaches. In fact, Being a mediocre player gave them an advantage in coaching, perhaps, not just because they got into it sooner, but because their lack of physical skill, even as players, forced them to look at the game differently and seek mental advantages to compensate for their physical disadvantages. This also explains why great players, not just in the NFL, but in every sport, uh, and not just black, but also white, often make very bad coaches. So it doesn't make any sense to say, well, there are so many great black players, though, why would there be more black coaches? It doesn't make any sense because being a great player does, does not in any way automatically translate into being a good coach. If anything, history indicates that it's, it's, it's a hindrance. Mike Singletary was featured in that Washington Post video. He was an abysmal failure as a coach. He was a terrible coach, but he was a Hall of Famer as a linebacker for the Chicago Bears. Many such cases. As I said, this holds true in other sports. Wayne Gretzky was not a good hockey coach. Michael Jordan isn't a coach, but he he proved himself to be totally inept as the owner of a basketball team. And you find this trend in many other fields outside of sports. Great salesmen often make really bad sales managers. Great scientists often make bad science teachers. People who are experts at doing things are often shockingly incompetent when it comes to teaching other people how to do those things. Why? Well, I think part of it is what I already theorized, that those who are in a certain field or profession... But are not gifted at actually performing the tasks, will by necessity have to cultivate other skills in order to remain in the field. But there's more to it than that. I think people who are instinctively great at doing something might, in a sense, be too close to the skill to understand it abstractly. So teaching and coaching is all about abstraction. It doesn't matter if you can do it. All that matters is that you can understand and can explain how it's done. Actually, if you're really great at playing a sport or making a sale or playing an instrument, it means that you are in the process of performing the skill, doing lots of things unconsciously. Yet the fact that they are unconscious means that you will not necessarily be equipped to explain them to someone else, much less teach them how to do it. You can probably find examples of this in your own life. and In, in you know, my case, much of my job revolves around public speaking. I speak in public, and different forums that all require different but related skill sets. Giving a speech is different from hosting a podcast, which is different from doing a three-minute hit on a cable news show, which is different from publicly debating somebody. Now, I like to think I've had some success in all of those areas, but could I teach a class on it? Probably not. I can do it. I'm not sure if I could tell you how to do it. So if I'm not hired as a public speaking coach, is that because the public speaking world is conspiring against me? Obviously not. I've had a lot of success in that world. No, it's just because explaining a thing is not the same as doing it, and being good at one does not mean you'll be good at the other. If anything, it often means the opposite. So this is my theory to explain the racial imbalances in NFL coaching. I think it makes sense. It takes into account statistical facts and realities of human nature. Um, It's not insulting to anyone, and it makes predictions that uh, can be observed in reality. But it doesn't help anyone become a victim and that's why it will be, of course, discarded in favor of the racism claim, as always. And that is all why, who's canceled today? I guess the Washington Post. We'll just go with them. They are today canceled. And that'll do it for this portion of the show as we move over into the members block. Hope to see you there. If not, talk to you on Monday. Happy Flannel Friday. Godspeed.